Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hi, my name is Wilder. All right, everyone. So I guess that's it. We got a little special guest on the intro today. I hope you are having the best day ever. I am for a few reasons. Number one, I re-listened to this episode with Sanjay and it's amazing. You're going to love everything about this incredible person. Number two, I got to hang out with none other than the Myrnavator yesterday. Uh, Myrna has been on the show four times. That's like a run this world, world record. <laughs> and she's about to break her own record because we are going to do a new concept called run this world with me and Myrna. Uh, the idea that I kind of came up with on the fly is that I will co-host with someone awesome to answer your questions. So prior to a future me and a co-host episode, I'll post on social media and you can ask questions that you want us to answer, which I assume would be somewhat relevant to the host, the co-host, but who knows? Um, you guys can be crazy. The goal is to have some fun with some of my favorite people on the planet and let the episodes take us where they want to go. I have a feeling they'll be fun and we'll get some nuggets. Uh, we're not going to rehearse. They'll be off the cuff. So let's see what happens. Life is about exploring the new after all. Uh, speaking of new, our amazing sponsor, Skirt Sports, is dropping newness every day. New styles, new colors, new prints, new fabrics. It's all coming in hot as we speak. So use the code RUN20 for 20% off. My personal favorite new style, which I might get seven pairs, one for every day of the week, is the High Rise 7 8 Tight in Noir Floor, this is exactly the colorway I love to. I love them all, but that's my personal fave. Uh, when I was approving the final sample, Jenna, the intern, was at the meeting, and she looked at me and simply said, it's fire, <laughs> which I thought was very Gen Z, and I felt cool. Um, you'll feel the, you will definitely feel the same when you wear these. Again, it's uh, the code is RUN20 for 20% off at skirtsports.com or come into the store in Boulder, 28th and Pearl. All right, let's talk about today's guest, the very special Sanjay Rowell. This man is transcendent. We use that word a lot today because one of his life's passions is to find depth in all the things we do in life beyond the actual acts of doing them. So take running, for instance. There's a race in New York called the Self-Transcendence 3100-Mile Race. This is a real thing that people do every year. They run around a city block in Queens for 3,100 miles. It takes them over a month, months. Uh, why do they do it? To become better, better people, better for themselves, 
better for the world around them to find meaning in their lives. And I think that's the message you'll get today. And it's why I named this episode Becoming a Better Person with Sanjay Rowell. All right, it's time for you to hear from him. Let's bring Sanjay on the show. So, um, Sanjay, it's so good to get you on my show. You know, I started recording. I mean, I think we're just going to roll. Is that cool? Let's roll. We're doing it. So you started out by saying that you're, uh, you're training. You're getting your miles in. Are you always getting your miles in? Or what do you have? You know, is there a, is there a goal race on the calendar right now? You know, I, I, I trained pretty hard as a kid and, and ran competitively and, and burned out at a very young age like most, uh, you know, college runners do and just had a, a, a hatred for the competitive aspect of the sport. And I, I ran races from, from time to time, but it wasn't really till I started production on, on my latest film, 3100 Run and Become, that I reignited a, a love for running. And actually, it's much deeper than it ever was. Well, this is so interesting because I can relate on many levels. I was a kid swimmer who was super competitive and like went to Olympic trials when I was 16 and, you know, was doing two a days and like your whole life uh, really revolved around one singular focus. Right. And at that time in our life, when we're young, we can do that. And then we don't know that if we overdo it, it can, you know, it can hurt us like physically and emotionally, you know, can like change the, our opinion about the thing we love so much, right? I'm totally with you. And, you know, as, 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 a, as, a, as a competitive youth athlete, as you know, like there's, there's no joy in second place. You know, you're, you're just taught to win. And, you know, when you don't win, you know, you're a loser. Um, but it wasn't until my first trip to the Navajo Nation in Arizona uh, where my whole viewpoint began to change. We ran with a, an ultra distance runner named Sean Martin, who's, who's featured in the movie. And I immediately noticed when Sean took off from his house running, and we ran in Canyon de Chez, one of the most gorgeous places I've ever been in my life. I, I, I noticed that, you know, he wasn't checking his GPS watch. He wasn't, you know, already planning out his run. And I could tell by the way he moved and the way he breathed that he was expecting something different out of the run, maybe something more meditative, maybe something more spiritual. And when I kind of got down to brass tacks with him, he said, look, you know, the Navajo people run for three reasons. We run because running's a teacher. We run because it's a celebration of life. And we run because it's a prayer. When you run, your feet are praying to Mother Earth. You're breathing in Father Sky. You're asking them, you're praying to them for their blessings, and you're showing them that you're willing to work for those blessings. Oh, God, no coach ever told me anything like that. That is absolutely amazing. So how old were you when you had this experience? I mean, I, I, I was 41. Oh, okay. Uh, so you were totally on the other side by now. Totally. And I'd, I'd run marathons, and I I'd, I'd, I'd did regular races, but... I, I, I never thought of myself as, as having a reason to run for the rest of my life. Yeah. And oh, go ahead, sorry. Uh, no, you go, keep going. When, when, when Sean told me that, I realized that 
if you want to get, if you want to transform yourself through running, you can. If you change your intentions around running and other athletics, you know, those pursuits can actually make you a better person. And I, I never approach sports that way. This is so interesting because um, I've got a seven-year-old daughter. Do you have kids? I don't. I was wondering how, you know, relationships fit into your amazing lifestyle. So we're going to get there today, too. Awesome. <laughs> Put you under the gun. I love it. Um, but, you know, I've got a seven-year-old daughter, and my husband and I both grew up very competitive athletes. And, I mean, we were both professional athletes later in life. And so I'm kind of even going back to when you were a kid and you were taught that, you know, winning is the goal and second place doesn't even count, basically. But I and I, I totally believe that that's not the right philosophy to teach a kid. But at the same time, we're we're starting to. We're starting to sort of struggle with this, like, how can we encourage her to push herself more to see, like, A, sort of how good she could be or if she enjoys going harder or faster or however you want to phrase that um, and yet keep it healthy and keep it happy. Because and the reason I'm sort of asking this is like it sounds like running was a big part of your core upbringing. And maybe helped you develop some of your core values even. And it took you to a certain point, like maybe even uh, helped you determine what college you might go to. Right. Or so it's not that it was all bad that you were a competitive runner growing up. But what's that line? Like, how can we help our kids to develop this? sort of, as you use this word a lot, transcendent philosophy towards running or fitness or sports in general, at the same time, encouraging them to push themselves? It's a great question. And I, I, I can only tell you what I've observed. You know, in, in 3100 Run and Become, we spent time with the few cultures on earth that have, that still have a practice of, of traditional or spiritual running. And that practice doesn't begin when when people are 15, 16, 17, 18. That practice of approaching running from the heart starts when kids are, are really, really young. For example, in many Southwestern Native traditions, the, a young girl's coming of age ceremony includes a long run. And that, that run is a, a, a holy part of life. And it's by no means the, the young woman's first run. Kids learn from a very young age to, in, in the words of a, of a Hopi elder that, that I met, they, they, they learn to find joy through exertion. And when I look at my own middling, you know, track career, I didn't, I didn't know how to find joy in a race. You know, I, I would be nervous at the beginning, almost to the point of, of, of throwing up. And, you know, if you win at the end, you find joy. But can we teach young kids to, to develop themselves personally and spiritually through the performance itself, through the journey and not necessarily measuring themselves by the result. Oh, I love that. I mean, this is hard. This it's is super hard. hard. Because, I mean, we're roughly, I think we're close to the same age and of the same generation where our parents were just like super hard workers and hard work. What it, and it still is for me like a, 
a, a core value in a sense, but it's how you work hard. I think that's evolving for me. It's not just like put in more time, you know, run yourself to the ground kind of thing. And um, so I feel like I grew up and in more of a end result is important. Have fun along the way, but the end result is important kind of culture. But today's kids are often not encouraged to be competitive at all. So I'm, it's, I'm, it's I'm, interesting. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. You know, my, my, my own teacher, Sri Chinmoy, who started the, the 3,100 mile race, his philosophy was based around this idea of self-transcendence and going beyond your limitations or your capacities. And that doesn't necessarily happen simply by, by doing a better time. It happens by putting in a, a better effort. And you know, from, from, from racing, you know, you have to be so conscious of where your body is and what's trying to limit you from, from doing your best and feeling your best. And it's this idea of completely concentrating on where you are and developing a sense of control over your heartbeat, over your breathing, and learning how to break through inner barriers. And that comes from putting yourself in scary situations like competitions. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm totally with you. It's like, you know, even though we're talking about not competing against anyone else, races give the body and the mind the, the opportunities to really show us who we are. Oh, I love that. You know, do you, there's this certain philosophy, at least in like Ironman triathlon world, which is hyper competitive, by the way, um, where the races that you really sucked the ones where you literally like walk the whole marathon because you can barely move, but you actually get to the finish line. And a lot of times people will say, those are the races that teach you the most about yourself. Not the ones where you won, the ones where you suffered. That, that's a, it's a great point, you know, and I, 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 would, I would add in, in my own experience, you know, it's, it's the ability to transform suffering into joy through sport that gives us the life lessons. You know, when, when we have those horrific races, you know, if it was truly about pain and if it was acute pain, we'd be forced to stop. But the idea that we're pushing through it means we're transcending it and we're finding satisfaction through that ability of going beyond. And, and that's the life lesson, whether you transcend and you push past the second place or push past the first place, um, participant and, and end up winning, or you learn something about yourself. And I think, I think that speaks to the core of, of running, being a teacher, as, as our Navajo friend, Sean Martin said. Oh my gosh. I just feel like we could just take this whole podcast in this direction. I just want to keep talking about like suffering and joy and transcending and finding the greater message. But before, you know, before we get too far down this road, I do want to learn a little more about your background because I know where you are today. And I think people listening already have a sense to maybe where you are today, but you didn't start here. I mean, you alluded to maybe having some, you know, years of suffering more as a kid where you were like, I don't know what I'm doing, right? I'm on this running track. I'm in college. Like, maybe you can, maybe you can share a little bit about your background growing up in Oakland, California, right? 
Oh, for sure. And, you know, I have to say that all, all of my issues growing up were existential. You know, my, my childhood was idyllic. My, my parents were incredible first generation. Actually, we were all kind of first generation immigrants. Uh, first moving to Boulder um, and then later on to Oakland. And I, I grew up in, in a space where, you know, as a first generation immigrant, you know, I was pushed to take advantage of the opportunities my parents never had. And so, God, I played three sports in high school. I played flute in the band. I played saxophone in the band. I was taking classes at, at, at the local colleges um, because, you know, my mom felt my teachers weren't weren't smart enough. Uh, so I was really a classic so overachiever. <laughs> yeah. So I was I was a classic overachiever. And by the time I got to to, to university, I went I went to Cal. You know, I I, I burned out by the time I was a sophomore. Um, and, and that forced me to really look at what I was doing and, and determine whether I could handle this pace for the rest of my life. And I realized it wasn't so much about the pace, but that I, I wasn't really satisfied with the goals that were put in front of me. And, you know, my parents are great. They, they, their education, their PhDs got them out of villages in India. But I, I realized that that wasn't going to make me happy um, in, 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 in this setting in the United States. And I began to look for something deeper. This is interesting because you you mentioned like you weren't satisfied with the goals put in front of you, and it kind of makes it sound like they weren't your goals. You know, as 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 a, as a kid, you know, most of our goals really aren't. And you know, how many of us have have parents um, like you that allow a kid to to grow and and determine who they are? But with with gentle pushing, giving them new experiences, but ultimately really allowing a kid the space to develop their own dreams and to understand what that really means. Oh, that's so that is so true. And it's it is a balancing line. Like you can't do that from birth. So at what point in a kid's development do they start to become their own person? And and it, it, it is around the college age. I mean, this is sort of the discovery time of your life, right? Self-discovery, that's the key. You're no longer in your parents' house. You have some independence. Who are you, you know? So what did you do with that? You said you started to seek your own path. What happened then? Well, I, 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 I kind of tried to do everything everyone was telling me, from martial arts to meditation and eventually, you know, as a poor college kid, went to a series of, of classes, free classes given by students of an Indian mystic named Sri Chinmoy. Um, Sri Chinmoy was raised in India, but he, he, he lived in New York and he moved there in the 60s. And interestingly enough, in the 70s, he was a really, in the 80s, he was a really good friend of Fred Lebo of the New York Roadrunners um, and Ted Corbett. And in 1977, I mean, imagine, this is New York in the 70s. In 1977 and 1978, there were no race expos, but there, were, there was a big event in Central Park the day before. And both of those events opened with Sri Chinmoy giving a meditation. His, his philosophy was very much, you know, about combining the inner life and outer life. And, you know, number one, like not going to live in a cave necessarily, but number two, understanding that the strength of the body will help your spiritual life. And so by the 80s, Sri Chinmoy and the New York Roadrunners were, you know, sponsoring and holding multi-day races, six-day races, seven-day races, 10-day races, 18-day races, 
um, in the parks of, of New York City. And when I came across his, his meditation style, his philosophy, this lifestyle of combining the inner and outer life, I, I felt like I kind of finally found a home. Wow. Um, you know, this whole, this whole concept of the multi-day races in a big urban environment, it, just, it feels very underground to me because, you know, when we get more into the 3100 self-transcendence run, I mean, I'd never heard of it. And I know a lot about our sport. And so are they kind of fringe type events that draw a certain type of person? I mean, the interesting thing is back in the, the late 1800s, like post-Civil War, these events called pedestrianisms were some of the most popular sporting events in both the United States and the UK. Madison Square Garden, for example, would have these six-day races around I think a 200 or 300 mile 300 uh, meter loop um, where competitors would would walk or jog mainly walk for, the, for for six days straight and people would bet on them and you know people were hopped up on on methamphetamines and all kinds of uppers and folks would hit you know 560 570 miles across six days and, you know, people from relative obscurity would win so much money as participants or as winners that it really was one of the first avenues to becoming a professional athlete. Um, now, that, that kind of disappeared with the advent of the Olympic movement in the 1900s. Uh, and, you know, that idea of multi-day racing, you know, almost disappeared. There were six-day races in the U.S. in the 70s, but that's when Fred Lebo decided as the as the, the, the head of the New York Roadrunners, let's revive this great New York City event. Let's do a six-day race. At the same time, a lot of the folks that came to marathoning in the 60s and 70s, uh, who by the 80s, you know, were kind of disappointed by the lack of, of counterculture spirit in the marathon, they wanted to push to greater and greater distances. I mean, just like Ted, the great Ted Corbett had. And so these multi-day races gave them the, the opportunity to see if they could reach a new level of performance and hit more miles than anybody ever had before. And, and this is really interesting because as today would maybe be called ultra running, right? <laughs> or stage racing. And, um, and it is a real thing and it's growing and it's big and it's getting national press and you can actually make money and be, you know, a real athlete, you know, having a big time career as an ultra runner, which used to be considered kind of a weird sport um, or not even a sport because they walk half of the time on the uphills. But it's so hard. And the big thing about ultra running is it's just more about not giving up. And what it does to your head and where it puts your head is into the most insane places. And so a lot of people would look at ultra runners and be like, oh, my gosh, they're just a bunch of crazy people. Like you have to be crazy to be an ultra runner. That's kind of a, you know, a common theme, at least for the average person. Right. I mean, the, the interesting thing, and I'm going to go, uh, go out on a limb here. Uh, we, we were talking about the idea of competition versus merely participating. You know, the, one of the issues with multi-day running is that the goal is standardized. You know, you're, you're doing a race on a track or on a one-mile loop, and the idea is to run as much as you can. And so it's, it's not about 
finishing a hundred miler. It's not about proving to yourself that you can reach uh, a goal based on 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 a course, for example. I mean, the the great thing about trail racing is that apart from like the elites who are really hammering to to try to get a podium, the rest of us can be out there and just say, "Can I finish in the cutoff?" And that, in a sense, is a different mentality than saying like, you know, I've got to try to hit this mileage. I've got to push more and more and more and more and more. And there's really no stopping until the time is over. So it's almost a multi-day running is almost a different mindset. At the same time, you know, it, it has very little outer appeal compared to like, you know, running from Squaw Valley, you know, to Auburn, running the Western States or running Leadville. It's like, you don't get that lift from being in a sheer, you know, atmosphere of, of, of beauty. Um, and it, it, it's, it's harder on so many levels. And I think it suffered in, in popularity um, because of those issues. Yeah, I can see that. Well, you know, you, you mentioned mindset too, through this sort of, as you're expanding on the concept a bit. And I think we should dig into where your mind goes in these races and, and this idea of transcending or becoming enlightened or, you know, finding, finding another dimension for yourself. That for many people is what they're really after. Um, and a lot of times, I mean, it kind of crosses into this, the concept of meditation. Like I, I haven't been able to include meditation in my life, um, partly because I haven't prioritized it. But it's on the fringe. Like I, I'm getting there, <laughs> I'm getting Good. there. But um, but a lot of times I would say to people, well, I I kind of find that place when I'm out running, that meditative place. Um, so how do you feel about like? Can you tie this sort of bumbling thing I just put out there together and share a little bit about this idea of how to get your your mind to a different place? through this act of putting one foot in front of another for a long time? Well, well so this is the outlandish thing, and this is really at the heart of, of, of our, our movie, 3100 Run and Become, that, that running, in a sense, was one of the first religions Homo sapiens ever had. You know, evolutionary biologists and like, you know, those, those, like the, the, those that write about it, like, like Chris McDougall and Born to Run, you know, they'll kind of posit that human human beings' advantage on the savanna was our ability to to stand on two feet and to run really slowly for really long distances. But you know, we spent time, and we show this in the film. We spent time with the Kalahari Bushmen, who have been around for 125,000 years, and they basically say, like, no, our evolutionary advantage didn't come from our ability to move on two feet. It came from the fact that moving on two feet coupled with prayer gives us extraordinary strength. And that echoed what Sean Martin of the Navajo Nation said, you know, it's like when we run, we're praying to Mother Earth, we're breathing in Father Sky. And Sri Chinmoy said the same thing, that running, as much as he loved tennis and other sports, he said running is the only sport that connects us to Mother Earth and to the heavens. And so it is inherently not just hardwired into our DNA, it's it's hardwired into into who we are as as spiritual beings, as people that are seeking something as simple as happiness. 
um, stripping away all the all the other jargon. So if you if you run with the idea of escape, you know you'll you'll get that. If if you run with the idea of it being a meditative experience, you'll definitely get that. So when I hear people mm-hmm. saying that running is their meditation, the, I, I I tell them there's there's a tremendous amount of truth in that. I like that. It's validating. <laughs> And for A-types, it makes you feel like you're doing two things at once. Check off the run, check off the meditation. <laughs> um, I know that's not really the goal. But, you know, I uh, I was thinking about prayer as you mentioned that. And I think a lot of people have the idea that prayer is this thing you do every night before bed. And it's regimented and there's a way you need to, to pray. Like, what does prayer mean to you? Well, from an from an Eastern perspective, you know, it's 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 how we talk to the universe. It's how we talk to all the beings and all the energies out there. Um, meditation is how we listen, and so they 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 go hand in hand. It's prayer has to be something, you know, spontaneous and natural. If it's forced and just coming from the mind, it doesn't do anything. It's like the, the the universe doesn't care about the words we say. Prayer is an act of supplication. It's an act of, of affirming that we're really insignificant when it comes to the universe, but we're very much a part of it, and we can connect and we can expect help from all the, the, the holiness around us. The same way a young child, if they ask their mother for something, you know, if they ask for it enough, you know, the mother's going to give it to them. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Well, let's, um, okay. So let's go back a little bit here to when you discovered Sri Chinmoy, did you like move right out to New York and start to pursue a different life? Had you already graduated college? Like what was going on with you at that time as you were discovering all these things that we're talking about now? I I was still a sophomore in college and, you know, every teacher, whether they're a karate teacher or whether they're a meditation master, they have a, a certain set of expectations of their students. I mean, even, even, you know, a track coach, it's like, if you don't show up, you're not in the team. It's like, and it might seem harsh, but if you want to get the most out of what your teacher or mentor offers you, you learn first and foremost that, you know, there's a certain set of, there's a certain level of obedience that you need to have. And so like a lot of Eastern meditation masters, his, his, kind of barrier to entry, the barrier to, to really becoming a student of his wasn't easy. I mean, it was like karate kid-esque, like, number one, no drinking. And, you know, as a college student, it's like, you go, wait, what? Um, <laughs> number two number two was no no smoking. It's like, whatever. Like, I, I smoked a cigarette on the weekend because it's like I couldn't run and smoke. Um, number three it was the idea that he said, if you want to pursue a path of universal love, there's a really quick way to get there. And that's by eliminating all of your desire for human love. And he wasn't categorizing one as, as, as a detriment to the other, but he was saying, on my path, I can get you to where you, where I'm, where, where you can go faster if you're celibate. And that's like in the Western you know, construct, much less you know, adolescence, you go, Oh my God, what does that even mean? But luckily, I guess I say this, you know, in hindsight, luckily 
I was just coming off a brutal breakup with someone I'd been with for about a year and a half. And so I was like, I don't need that right now anyhow. You know, I can definitely try it for two weeks. And the, the I mean, like, you know, you it's like. You can do anything for two weeks, right? I know, right? But that, that, that seemed like as wide as the Grand Canyon to me. Um, but after two or three weeks, I was like, oh, my God, I feel better than I ever have in my life. I think I can try this for another month, maybe. And it progressed like that through the first year or so. And then I realized I've been celibate for a year and I don't care. And I'm happier than I've ever been. And I've totally changed the way I look at myself and I look at life. I no longer hate certain things about myself. And the future is incredibly exciting. And so after I graduated um, with, with a bachelor's, I told my parents, hey, I'm not going to grad school. Um, and I'm moving to New York City because it's like this has changed me so much. Like, why would I not want to pursue this kind of inner education to the absolute limits where it could take me? Wow. OK, this is huge. So were your parents like, oh, no, he's he's gone off the deep end? Well, my relatives, my, my, my parents, you know, my parents could feel how happy I was. But like my relatives were like you know, why did you guys move to America for him to just follow an Indian guru? Like, what a waste. <laughs> it was funny. Oh, my gosh. So ironic. <laughs> so, like, did you feel any pressure or were you just feeling so, I don't know, self-aware and, and confident in your future path, even if you didn't know what it was going to be, that you were just, like, taking the leap? I, I didn't have any choice. And, I, and, and in those previous two years, you know, I'd finally learned how not to hesitate. I'd finally learned how to make the decisions that were going to be best for me. I mean, long before this, this phrase self-care was, was in vogue, you know, I understood that, you know, nothing is benefit, nothing, nothing I could do in life would help anybody if I wasn't happy. So let me focus on what that meant. And that meant like not going to medical school and trying to figure out who I was first. And so, yeah, like it was, there was, it was really, really, you know, personally upsetting to my parents. Um, and it took them about eight or nine years to, to realize that, you know, they should be happy. They taught me how to assert myself. They taught me how to recognize what my dreams were and they taught me how to, to work as absolutely hard as I could to achieve those dreams. Can I, can we talk about this idea of learning how not to hesitate and how to make the decisions that are right for you? Um, I, I bring it up because I, you know, I interact with a lot of people. I've gone through these things myself. We lose sight of ourselves sometimes and we forget to, trust our own intuition. Um, I recently was talking to a friend who I rarely see and she just said, I know my marriage is over. I'm in it. I know I need to leave it. We're not even connected at all. We don't sleep in the same bed. We're just living in the same house, but I haven't pulled the trigger. Like she's not ready to make that final decision for some reason. She's still hesitating. Like, can you 
maybe share some thoughts for people listening and myself even on how do we not hesitate? How do we learn that? You know, the, my, my own experience, you know, really taught me how many parts of our, I'll say, being we, we, we don't really utilize. You know, from an, a Western standpoint, you know, we're taught to make our mind really, really powerful. Um, we're, we're taught to make our body strong, but we're not really taught how to use our emotions, how to feel, um, and how important it is to feel love, to feel peace, and to access parts of ourselves on a regular basis that we can, where we can channel and bring those qualities into our lives. You know, the, the mind is a good thing, but very often it's full of confusion, and it over, it analyzes things that it even if it knows what the right thing is, it wants to explore it in a thousand million different ways before really realizing that it, the first bit of intuition was 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 the truth. But when we bring in the power of our heart, which comes from meditation and pretty much only meditation, um, we bring in the power of the heart when we bring in like those feelings of peace and security and love that we get from meditation, all of a sudden when the mind has an idea, the heart reinforces it. And the heart makes the mind understand like, yeah, that's the right thing to do. And the heart makes the fear disappear. We, we, we don't hesitate because we're full of joy. We're full of bliss. We're full of confidence. We hesitate because of fear of the unknown. And the heart is what makes us feel what the will of the universe is, what, you know, what our, our, our immediate and kind of future needs are going to be. Wow. So the gateway drug here for a lot of what we're talking about is meditation. Yeah, the, 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 yes. mind is just, the mind is just too developed. And the, the, the primary step in meditation is, is learning how to quiet the mind down. And when that happens, it's like we've suddenly turned off like a white noise machine that's been running in our heads for the last couple decades. So will you educate a little more about meditation? I know many people are like me. They're intrigued. They want to figure it out. They want to try it. They're just not sure how or what it could really do for them. You know, meditation can be easy if approached the right way. It's like, you know, if, if, if a beginning runner you know, just goes and grabs like, you know, Finding Ultra by Rich Roll, you know, chances are they're not going to like necessarily become a great ultra runner overnight. Uh, but if you go find a run club and you're around people that have at least a little bit more experience than you and can also be encouraging, you know, all of a sudden you start making progress in leaps and bounds. And so many of us in the West kind of feel that you know, we are our own guru that, you know, we can learn meditation from a book and it's really, really, really hard. So I, I would say to people, like, make your lives easier. Like, go to the, the, the meditation workshop at the yoga studio. You know, most gyms have meditation classes. There's a million different Buddhist and Hindu organizations in every city that offer meditations. You know, you're under no obligation to join a particular group, but go there and learn from people and um, absorb. I mean, the great thing about meditation is that the more intensely you practice, and it's not necessarily in terms of time, 
but the more intensely you value what you what you can get out of it, um, the more quickly you'll make progress. So you know that five minutes you spend if you're thinking about like your lunch, it's not going to help. But if you spend that five minutes, you know, really practicing a technique with intent, you can make very 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 quick progress. You know, I hadn't really thought about it that way. I wasn't thinking about meditation as something you do with others because it feels like something that brings you within yourself. And there's so many shortcuts. Like I have headspace on my phone. That's what I've been. I have been trying and say I've been trying. I have been trying. I end up doing it like once a month. I'm not consistent. And, And I hadn't thought about it like any other sport or activity that there's power in learning from others. And it's interesting because when I first, you know, got you on the call today, I said, what a great happy face to see this morning. Um, Have you already meditated today? And you said, yes, because I knew that about you. And you said, have you? And I said, no, (laughs) I'm trying to, I'm considering including it in my life. And you just said to me, you said, you'll get there in this really like supportive and sort of universal love kind of way. And it was an answer I didn't quite expect. And I'm just remembering it right now. And I love that approach. So I appreciate that. Thank you. That's very kind of you. It's really cool. So, um, okay. So you moved to New York now. You're sort of living your new path. And um, I mean, how did, there's still practical considerations like don't you have to have a job and make money so that you can support yourself like how do you continue down this path of self-realization let's just call it and still survive I mean I I, I worked in a health food store you know I, I, I was a shop clerk um, I was just you know trying to spend as much of my time you know, being around Sri Chenmoy, doing what he wanted me to do, um, and, you know, working in a small health food store owned by some of his students. So I was very, I was very, very much immersed in that. And as I, I guess, as I, as I made progress and as I kind of became more in tune with myself, he began giving me responsibility. Um, he had a, a lot of friends out there, like Mother Teresa and Desmond Tutu and very quickly, you know, he had me assisting them and when they came to, 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 to New York City, Desmond Tutu in particular. And I ended up kind of developing an understanding for this greater world of like service, of humanitarian service, of development, of like, you know, uplifting people, of working on people's needs, uh, physical needs, spiritual needs, and gradually became, I guess, a, 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 a pretty, you know, pretty... I don't know what the right word is, but like a human rights consultant that people wanted to work with. And that, that took about 10 years, but he was reaching my really basically just opened a door, you know, pushed me through it and slammed it shut. Um, but gave me access and opportunities to things that I couldn't have even imagined in college. Wow. And that is intense, but in a, a really, I don't know, in a, in a, in a way that feels good. It's like, you know, this discovery phase of life that we sort of mentioned earlier that it's kind of natural for people in their like 20s, basically. You know, you're 
you're an independent person, your whole discovery phase probably lasted about 10 years that you just mentioned before you stumble upon maybe the next big purpose. Does that sound accurate? I mean, that's, that's eerily accurate. Um, it, it wasn't really until my, until I was 29, 30. And I, at that stage I began starting foundations uh, for artists, for actors, um, and then switch in my past in 2007 when I was 33. And I was forced to kind of really come to terms with the absence of his, his physical teachings. But it came, became very apparent very, very quickly that all of his teachings really came through my meditations. And again, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that I was meditating alone. It was that I could actually feel his presence and his guidance in a very weirdly tangible way. Um, through silence. And so I had to really begin leaning on that inner aspect, on that inner avenue a lot more than I did when he was physically around. Wow. I mean, that's powerful. That's like Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of stuff here. <laughs> that's why we all love Star Wars. I know. I mean, it's it's that there's there's even more power in your presence when you're gone physically. Wow. Um, so, OK, here's something that maybe could be a good segue or helpful for people, too. So we spend this these periods of our life and I'm saying discovery periods come at all times in our lives. I mean, we're constantly discovering, but I think it's just a little more intense at certain times. But so say you've gone through, you're coming out of a discovery period, and, and now that you know who you want to be and how you want to live, how do you create that life around it? I, I frankly don't think that we can make any changes without having support and without having friends. And that, that's why I kind of suggested if people want to learn how to meditate, you know, to go from group to group to group. Um, until you find a style of meditation that really suits your needs. Um, and number two, uh, when you, when, until you find a, a group who really inspires you. Um, life out there is hard, and we absolutely can't do it alone. Yeah, that's true. I mean, relationships are, are in my opinion, the, one of the other cores to happiness is connection. Um, actually, that leads me to ask, so do you, do you ever drink? Have you had a drink since, or do you drink? I, I've, I've had a glass of wine or a, 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 a couple of sips of champagne at weddings and on celebratory occasions, but, but no, it's, it's, not a, it's not something I do recreationally. And then do you smoke? I don't. And then are you still celibate? I am. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked by that. Um, oh, my gosh. And so... How, you know, do you have relationships with other people that would be kind of, you know, you said you came off of that tough relationship in college. Is that your last, like, one-on-one -on -one super intimate relationship? Yeah, but at, at the same time, and, and this is what I, I kind of learned, you know, pretty quickly with, with Sri Chinmoy, like, how many different types of, of fulfillment one can get from love? Um, like it, in Sanskrit, there are seven words for love. And these were things that I didn't really even understand I could explore in a Western context. But by separating myself from 
that that kind of boiler room of of one-on-one relationships and really how hard even they make you look at yourself um you know apart from you know absent or, or or away from that i had the chance to really come into myself and understand what forms of love give me a type of satisfaction where i can constantly grow and constantly learn from and at the same time you know on a very selfish level if you're just looking at the idea of self care it's it's much i'm not it's not impossible at all obviously the other way but it's it's much easier to like learn how to become a better person if you're not responsible for the well-being of other people at the same time and yeah you know that's true <laughs> yeah i mean so like that that's like and i'm i'm just i'm just weak that way like i don't think i could actually handle it um <laughs> Well, you know, it's hard too because often we live based on other people's expectations. It's kind of like what you talked about your parents. You know, we all we all have that at least to a certain age. And um, when you truly live under a set of your own expectations and your own values, I mean, I feel like that's when you can really come into yourself. I I I, I totally agree, and 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 I I can't say that I haven't met a handful of people that that caused me to really reassess or reaffirm um my my path in life um and i, I mean i i fully i'm i'm i i'm a kind of firm believer in that nothing in life should be rigid um no goals should be dogmatic but they should form a code of life um that that is constantly evolving and that you know one is ki- constantly discovering uh new levels and new layers of appreciation for so there 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 have been a few people that you know I've seriously considered you know in terms of my own path to happiness but when I separated myself from you know what I wanted and what I needed in life uh again it was it was that ability to listen to my heart that told me you know this might be something that you would enjoy for a month or a year or two but it's not something you could necessarily you know thrive from over a longer period and if i if i did make that commitment i also was making a commitment to someone else's happiness and That's would i would i still have that in 2 years and could i still what i what i want to do that to someone knowing that it might be ephemeral it's interesting because a couple things come to mind. I, I keep thinking about the word discipline. You know, I don't know why. It's just sort of like that sounds so disciplined. But then I I started thinking as you're talking about I guess the idea that people sometimes look at someone else or something and go, "Oh, I could never be that. I could never do that. Like I don't have that in me. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not whatever enough." Um until they try it. And then one day they realize, "Wow, it wasn't as hard as i thought or i'm getting so much more out of this than i ever thought it's a, it's an interesting concept i think it boils down to this idea that we call aspiration like how much do you really want something you know if you really really want something you know that thing's going to happen not necessarily by virtue of of you doing something in a very kind of prescribed way but it's the idea that you will break through barriers to get to that goal whether it's an outer goal or an inner goal and with that aspiration solutions present themselves to you 
Yes. And it's, it's uh, being open to the solutions. I know. Yeah. So, and, so, and that way it doesn't even feel like discipline. Yeah, you're right. Oh my gosh. So guess what? You don't have to think you're not disciplined. It's all a frame of mind. Yeah. Uh, so do people consider you a spiritual leader? Oh, I hope not. I really hope not. <laughs> if they do, they, if they do, they don't know me well enough. So um, you don't like, you know, Sri Chinmoy had like students, pupils. Like, is that going to be you someday? I I sincerely hope not. I think one like one time he jokingly, half jokingly said, you know, please don't ever become a guru. You know, it's like if you can imagine, like I mean, it, obviously you 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 can imagine like taking on the responsibility of that of of making sure to the best of your capacity you know, one's spouse or partner is happy, one's children are happy. Um, a, a real spiritual leader takes on the task of leading his or her students to ultimate enlightenment, regardless of the number of incarnations that might take. So like, think about how heavy that is. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And so like people who might say they're, they're, spiritual teachers, you know, might not necessarily understand the level of commitment that they've brought upon themselves too. You know, what does it mean, truly mean to be enlightened? That that's a great question. And I I I, I can't say I can't give a great answer because I'm not I'm nowhere close, but I can say from from having having been around Sri Chinmoy, I mean I I, I felt a sense of peace in his presence that I didn't, and I still don't feel, and I've never felt even around, you know, people like, and I won't even name them, but like, like, like saints, people that people consider saints. It's like this idea of, of being enlightened is almost like being, you know, like a very positive, we don't really have a word for it, like a really, really positive vortex or like a really positive like black hole where that that energy is like just pulling you into that consciousness and yanking you into that space of peace of bliss of joy and when when you leave it you realize god that's something i want to be in all the time and it inspires you to cultivate that within your own life I think you're on your way, even through Skype. I'm feeling the peace. Oh yeah, well, you, you know, you, you've got you've got the old reflection filter on. What you're feeling is just your joy and 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 beauty and love. You know, I actually love that um, love that concept as well. I think I think we forget sometimes. Like, okay, example, I dropped my kid off at camp today, and. I drove home and I went away. I don't usually go. And I didn't realize there was a yield sign. Like, fortunately, I didn't cause an accident, but I kind of just like pulled right into traffic. And the person behind me was so pissed. They put their horn on for, you know, one minute. Arms were flying. And um, and I I put my hand up with a wave and then I pulled up next to her at the next light and I, I kind of made willed her to look at me and I just said, I'm so sorry. Thank you for giving me that warning. Um, I don't go that way usually. And I could tell she was super tense and then she relaxed and I was ready to take on her aggression and I breathed and let it, 
and thought about what that would do if I was pissed that she was pissed. You know what I mean? It's these little examples that I was actually very proud of myself for sort of taking that <laughs> humbler road of thanking her instead of throwing it back at her. You know what I mean? I mean, you're a better person than me. I, I can tell you that right away. Well, you live in New York, so driving might be a little different than in Boulder. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's that reflection, and we have to remember that. You know, what we're putting out there is really just being thrown right back at us. So it's only going to, like, perpetuate wherever we are, positive, negative, aggressive, sad, happy, right? I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I mean, it, it, it all boils down to like, you know, how much you want to, how much you want to experience love and a lack of tension in your life and, and how brave you, how brave you have to be sometimes to choose that. Yes, it's a choice. Oh my gosh. Okay. So we've been rolling on this really cool kind of deeper spiritual stuff, but I kind of want to bring it back to what's going on today, which is the 3100 self-transcendence run is actually happening. 52 day race set in New York that you did an amazing job turning into an incredible film, 3100 run and become. And I think you said, um, are there 20 days left in this year's race? Yeah, right now we're on day 34, and the race uh, the race window is 52 days. So there, you know, there are eight competitors this year from around the world. There's usually about 14 or 15, but there are eight this year, and they have to average at least 59 miles a day to finish within that 52 day window. Oh my! So did you know about this run when you moved to New York, or how did you stumble upon it? So I moved to New York in the winter of 1997, and this race started in the summer of 97. Oh. I was an, an 800-meter runner and, and a middling miler, and the idea of a 3,100-mile race, it scared the living daylights out of me. I mean, I can't tell you the fear I got when I looked at that number. Wow. Okay, so it starts with a meditation, right? Every morning, the competitors have to be on the course, which is a half-mile sidewalk loop around the school. They have to be there at 6 a.m., and the course closes at midnight. There are RVs um, on the course. There's obviously aid um, every half a mile. The loop's only half a mile long, and uh, the runners basically do this loop over and over and over and pound down ten to 12,000 calories a day and probably five gallons of water. Okay, so have you ever done this race? I haven't. I've, I've done a six-day race, uh, which was similar in concept, where it was on a one-mile loop, but the course is open 24 hours a day. Okay, I'm kind of like, you know, people listening are, are probably like, wait, can you say that again? Like, 52 days, a half-mile concrete, like, sidewalk? So th this is what I kind of got out of the six day and I, and I, I see it so clearly in the 3100 and I, it, I pull from like the Kalahari Bushman and Navajo experiences that I've had, you know, people have experienced when they do like a multi-day fast, you know, despite the, the notion of calories in after two days, you might start to have energy again, and that's because the body's kind of shifted its me metabolic cycle and you're burning ketones. 
So on a on a spiritual and kind of anthropological level, I I, I learned from these traditional running cultures that when you run with a certain intention, the distance doesn't matter. And I see from these runners who, you know, obviously show up day in and day out, and a number of runners have come and done this race several times. After two or three days, when the body gets acclimated to the weather, to the sidewalk, to the calories, and the mind begins to shut down and stop resisting, they enter into the space where it's apart from the occasional blister, it's pretty much an experience of happiness. I mean, nobody would do this if they were in pain all day long. Ah, that's true. It's that idea of stopping resisting, to stop resisting. And you know, in the movie, um, which how can people watch right now? Because it's not in theaters at the moment, is it? No, we, we were in theaters last year and we're on Amazon and iTunes and Google Play right now. Okay, cool. So we're going to have a link in the show notes. Um, but it's an incredible film. And you follow, you know, this reigning winner from Finland, correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And he repeats many times that the reason he does this is to be a better person. And I just found that so interesting because a lot of times when you ask people, why are you doing that marathon? Why are you doing that 5K? That's not their answer. At so the same time, at the same time, it's like, you know, I think a lot of ultra runners realize that the, the longer you run, the, in essence, the better person you become. And so, you know, people who run the, the, the 50 milers, 100 milers, sometimes have the experience that like, life only begins after 26.2. You know, 26.2 doesn't require patience in the sense that, you know, you can like be totally wrecked the last six miles and you can gut yourself through it. But when you're doing these much longer distances, you have to run from a different space within yourself. You have to run with a lot more control, with a lot more presence, with a lot more poise. And even more importantly, when you get past these levels that where calories don't help anymore. You have to be able to find different sources of energy and inspiration. And again, lastly, the longer you run, the more physical problems you have. And that energy within yourself had better be strong enough to overcome those physical problems and give you a sense of purpose and a sense of joy. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and speaking of, you know, running longer, a topic that I'm pretty interested in, too, is the gender gap, it neutralizes, right? You know, the, 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 this is my, my own totally, you know, like unprofessional or, or, or you know, unofficial opinion. Um, number one, yes. It's like when you get to longer and longer and longer distances, you know, rather than, you know, the, the first woman being after the top 10 men, very often, even in, in elite races that are multi-day races, like three-day, six-day, ten-day, it's like a woman could play second. Um, in, in the 3100, usually, I mean, in, in, every, in every edition now, the 23 editions, you know, the number one place is, is, has always been a man, and occasionally number two has been a woman. And, and this is my totally unprofessional opinion, that in the 3100, the only... And, and, and the women who run the race, you know, might agree or they might hate me for it. Um, the only reason why a, a, a woman hasn't yet 
totally crushed a man is because no one has before. You know, it's like when, when Roger Bannister broke four minutes, nobody had done it, but like two days later, you know, the floodgates were opened. Um, so in essence, like I don't see the physical ability being any different in a race like this. And I think it's just a matter of time before a woman starts consistently winning this race, even amongst a field of top men. You know, it was like a light bulb went off when you said that. I was thinking, what's he going to say? Why? Why? And you could, it's absolutely very true. As soon as someone sets a new standard, you know, world's open. It's amazing. Gosh, that's so cool. Um, speaking of, like, other intense and crazy running events... You know, I saw and read a little bit about this experience or, or this, would you call it a ritual of what they call the running monks. And I just really wanted, it's such a crazy, like out there kind of concept and, but it's real. It really happens. And I thought we could take a second to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the first uh, sect of Buddhist monks, um, in Japan live outside the major central Japanese city of Kyoto in this kind of mountain forest wonderland. And once every seven to 10 years, they choose a man or a woman to trek for a thousand days. Now, listeners will have to put their math hats on for a second. Um, those thousand days are split up into 100-day cycles. And the aspirant has to complete all 10 cycles within about eight years. So it's mostly one cycle a year, every once in a while there's two. Each cycle from one to 10 has a prescribed set of daily miles. And the first few are 11.2 miles and each one of those loops is about, of those 11.2 mile loops requires about a 3000 foot vertical um, differential. And you know people dress in robes and in these bamboo sandals, but by the time they get to the eighth, ninth and 10th cycle, they're up at about 36 and then 56 miles per day. And here's the kicker, and this is what I think you're alluding to. Um, if the aspirant doesn't complete their daily miles on any one day, that's it. They have to, they have to take their lives. I mean, that is, I was watching um, Free Solo, and yeah. they, they were comparing the idea with Alex Honnold that it's either you do the climb or you die. There's no in between. There's no like I got halfway and I missed a, a grip. And so it's the same kind of thing. It's like you're all or you're dead. Not even all or, or nothing. It's not like you won or lost. You win or you die. That's just crazy. And that's that goes on. Like that's a real thing that still happens. You know, it, and, and just like in free solo, it's crazy to everyone but the person doing it. You know, if, if Honnold was thinking that the, his next move could be his last, you know, it would be his last. And he's able to accomplish these feats because he's not thinking about death. You know, he's thinking about the positive goal of transcendence, of the joy that he's getting. And it's the same thing with these monks. They affect, people affectionately call them the marathon monks. You know, the, the preparation, just like free solo, is done years in advance so that when you tow the line or when you kind of get to your first hold, 
you know, you're only thinking about all the positive things that are ahead of you. And you're entering into the activity with a sense of calm, with a sense of bliss, with a sense of purpose that this is going to be the best experience of your life. Of course, unlike Alex Honnold, you know, if, if you do mess up as a marathon monk, it's not due to an accident. You do have to con- you have to consciously fall off the rock, so to speak. <laughs> oh my gosh. And you know, I can appreciate this concept and take it into even life as an entrepreneur. This not the idea of like you win or you die, but <laughs> the idea that you must see forward a positive path at all times because there are so many barriers. And if you, in your mind, start to waver and decide to focus on the negative ones, your your business, your livelihood, it's you're just not going to make it because there there's so much coming at you. You need to stay on that path of believing that you will always have a positive outcome, even if it's not there immediately. Absolutely, it's interesting. Well, you know, we've been chatting and rapping for quite a while, and this is this has been so awesome. I just wish it could have been in person. And you did grow up in Boulder, so someday you'll have to come back here, and we'll we'll go out for a hike. And oh, and that would be awesome! Guide, I can't wait. You can guide me in a meditation. Oh my gosh, done! Now I'm really excited. Um, awesome. You know, before we go, I have a, a couple other quickies. Um, you know, is there anything that you need to work on every day? Oh gosh, this is a this is a real that's a really good question and it and it's a hard one. Um, you know, but what 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 I've been working on in like the last six or seven months is trying to understand why I worry about things and realizing that there's there's so much in life that's so not in our control and I tend to worry about things that somehow I feel I'm in control of, whereas, you know, there's, there's nothing that we're really in control of. And so in, in essence, it's like I have, to, I'm, I'm having to work on what this idea of faith means. And the idea that it, it, it's not just this idea of blind belief or saying like, oh, no, it'll happen in this like unrelenting kind of false positivity. It, it's, it's forcing me to kind of try to understand what it means to be humble um, what it means to be, you know, to feel like I, in a positive way, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally insignificant in this world and in this universe. Like everything will go on with or without me. And how can I enjoy more of what's happening now uh, without necessarily worrying about a, a, a positive or negative result in the future? Like how can I do what's needful and maybe even boring, and how can I learn to enjoy that? Oh, wow. That's good stuff. I mean, a lot of people would be like, yeah, I work on getting more sleep, you know, but this is like what it's really all about. And I love that, you know, you brought up the concept that we really don't control anything. And that's what brings us, I think, the most friction in our lives and the most, you know, tension and stress is like, trying to change things that we don't control crazy i i'm, I'm totally with you and you know there, there there was a woman named superba beckward um uh, an entrepreneur in washington dc 
She was the, the first woman to complete the 3,100 mile race back in 1997. And she did it 13 times in a row. Um, the, the character in our movie, Ashbrihan Alto, has run it 15 times now. He's doing it this year, but not, not by no means in a row. And so I've, I've been lucky to have spent a lot of time with, with Superba and to kind of try to understand her mindset of, of coming back and doing that race over and over and over and understanding how difficult it is. And one of the things that she said was that there's so many factors in the race that are so far beyond your control from the weather, you know, from how you, you recover, from all the little intangibles that all you can really do is try to get joy in the moment and have faith that if you do get joy in that moment, you know, not only is that a, a source of, 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 of performance energy, but you know, you're going to end up having an experience that changes your life. And so I, I'm, I'm trying to apply that in, in my own way to like my day-to-day activities. Oh, I love that. Well, you know, what is next for you? What are you working on now? You know, I'm, I'm working on a film, another running film, but this is going to be a, a scripted film, like based on a true story of the greatest American female runner, in my opinion, ever to have, have, have graced our roads. And 99% of people that I speak to have never heard her name. Are you allowed to share it? Yes. So, you know, there, there was a woman who ran under um, a married name of Patty Catalano. Um, her name is Patty Dillon now. And she kind of came out of nowhere in 1976. In her words, really an unhappy, chain-smoking, uh, part-time nurse's assistant half Irish Catholic, half Micmac Native American in the suburb Quincy uh, outside Boston. And on a lark began running and ran her first marathon in 1976 in a time of 2.53. And just rose, you know, you know in, in those last years of the 70s and the early 80s, she um, held almost every American record between the five mile and the marathon. She was the first American woman to break 2.30, uh, behind a second place behind Greta Waits in the 1980 New York City Marathon. She was Nike's first female-sponsored athlete. Everything good that could have happened to an athlete in that era happened to her, and everything bad that could have happened to a female athlete um, happened to her. Um, you know, the, the, the op-eds by Allison Felix and uh, Kara Goucher in, in the New York Times um, talking about their experiences in the last 10 years, when I read that and I, I, I kind of read about Patty's experiences in 1980 to 84, you know, it, it just astounded me how nothing has changed. And, you know, Patty kind of was one of the first women to kind of experience the, the patriarchy of the running industry and uh, in, in by, from Kara and Allison Felix's experiences, I, I see how deep the roots of that patriarchy are. Wow, this movie is going to do amazing, <laughs> at least in my circle. And we are going to push it out. When is it? When is it going to come out? Well, you know, we're writing the script now, and you know, obviously, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dude, and I've, I, in, in any, in any ordinary world, I would, I would be the first to say, like, I have no right to tell her story. Um, that said, you know, Patty's also my running coach and we've come to know each other over the last few years 
And, you know, from a documentary film perspective, you know, like my experience there has been how to tell people stories in the most accurate, honest way in their own words. And when it's come to writing the script, which we're almost done with, hopefully the film will be shot next year. But when it comes to writing the script, I don't need to make anything up. Like, I don't need to try to put myself in Patty's head because, you know, everything that you could want in a script from, you know, from great victories to like the agony of defeat, you know, from crazy experiences to like hard experiences all happened to her. And, you know, we spent hours interviewing her. Um, so hopefully with a, a great team of Native American actors, actresses, um, you know, we can make something that inspires people uh, across the board. Oh, I, I believe you will. You are incredibly talented at, at telling these stories. So, all right, we'll anxiously await. <laughs> Um, all right, we have been, we're winding down now. We're at the end of our 3100, let's say. Yeah. Oh, Nicole, so, this was so much fun. I just can't express like, you know, how special I think this conversation has been for me and how I'm, I'm going to end up reflecting on what we talked about for, for quite some time to come. So thank you. Oh, me too. And there's one more thing. Um, I leave our listeners with one final piece of advice from every guest who comes on the show, one little nugget that will help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way. So what would yours be? Oh, that's, 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 that's a very powerful way to end. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, listen to your heart, you know, learn to love that voice, learn to reinforce it because it's pretty much always there. Um, we just sometimes need to make it stronger and we need to kind of strength, strengthen our resolve to listen to that, you know, whether it's through meditation, whether it's through running, whether it's through life, um, you know, know that that voice is, is always there trying to guide us and can lead us to, you know, many beautiful and wonderful things. It's a perfect way to finish this. And it, it, it goes right back to where we started. So thank you, Sanjay. You are a bright light in this world. I'm so glad to uh, include you in mine now. Well, I, I'm, I'm honored to be counted amongst your friends. Thanks, Nicole. Hey there, everybody. I am back. What a truly incredible, very long 5K today with Sanjay. At least we didn't run 3,100 miles, um, although I bet you could have kept listening to him for at least a marathon. Sanjay is one of those people who just makes you feel better about yourself, about your circumstances, about your past, your present, your future. He encourages you to think bigger in all ways. I really appreciate this because there are many days and many moments when I get super granular and can't surface my brain to get back to the bigger purpose. And I know you can relate to this. The more we can practice this, the better off we'll be, the happier we'll be. And that truly is the end goal after all. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. I have two requests. If you haven't already, please write me a review on iTunes. I need some fresh ones. Um, they're kind of old. They're getting stale. Come on, guys. I know you like this podcast. Um, and number two, consider becoming a podcast patron. You can support this show at any level that works for you. Most patrons contribute five to 10 bucks a month. 
Um, I do this for free. It's I'm not making money on it. So I really appreciate any support you can give as I want to grow the show and I need more resources to do it. Eventually, it could be like Rich Roll flying people out on a private plane. I mean, that's a little ways down the road. I need a lot of patrons for that. But <laughs> if you want to support it, go to Patreon. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Nicole DeBoom. All right, then. That's it for today, I think. Hi. Oh, we got another special guest. Hi. What's going on, Wilder? Oh, she's just going to go. Well, you go play with some Legos and get yourself ready for your day because you guys, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout. And she has school. And I'll see you next week.